Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church Podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel and Evangelism sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakershield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the, the wonderful privilege that you've given us tonight to come and to worship in your word. We pray that tonight would be a, a sermon that would equip us, Lord, for the purpose of sharing the gospel, knowing the gospel, sharing the gospel, living out the gospel, Lord. And we pray that all things that we teach tonight and say tonight would be for your honor and glory. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our series on the gospel and evangelism. So far we have learned that that God is holy, creator and judge. And these attributes do not, again, encompass the vast attributes of God. But the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of sharing the gospel, they, they are adequate when you're sharing the gospel. Meaning that when you're sharing the gospel... There are a number of attributes that you can discuss when talking about the attributes of God. But for the purpose of sharing the gospel, there are three that are sufficient. And that is that God is holy, God is creator, and that God is judge. Does that make sense? We learned that man was created by God in the image of God. Man was created sinless and given commands to obey God, commands to expand the glory of Eden. To care for the earth, to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We learned that man fell when he disobeyed the commands of God and he was therefore judged and punished because of that. Man became corrupted, therefore, in his mind, in his will, and in his emotions or his desires. These faculties were disabled and polluted with unrighteousness. This is what we learned about man. We learned that man died and was separated from God because of sin. The wrath of God is fixed upon all sin and unrighteousness now. And and not even now. One of the things that we learned at the conference was that God is immutable, meaning that God is unchanging. So God has always, his wrath has always been against sin and unrighteousness. Does that make sense? That is a part of his eternal nature, that God is eternally wrathful or vengeful against sin and unrighteousness. So we developed a working presentation of the gospel that goes something like this just in its introduction. That God is holy. He is the creator of the universe and he is the judge. Man was created in God's image, made perfect. God gave a command to expand his glory, worship him, and obey him. Man rebelled and disobeyed that command, bringing death to all humanity. We have become depraved in our minds, our wills, and our desires. Because of sin, we have become separated from God, from holy God, and his wrath is upon all unrighteousness of sin. So this is our working introduction to the gospel. And this is, as we said last time, This is definitely bad news. And I I could feel the weight (laughs) last time of of your reaction to the bad news that was being presented that night. And, And the fact of the matter is, that's a right response to the bad news. 
a right response should be weight. It should be heaviness. Uh, because we have violated the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. We are dead in our sin, unable, unwilling to come to God on our own. The fact of the matter is that we can do no spiritual good to escape the wrath of God that is upon us. The fact is that we are separated from God and will be judged by God because of sin. This is all very, very bad news for every single human being that's ever lived. So, here's the question. In light of the bad news that we talked about last week, here's the question. In light of all of these bad news truths, what hope is there in light of those truths? That is a probing question when you're sharing the gospel. When you're doing evangelism, the probing question is, so what hope is there then for you? That's, that's a cliffhanger there. That's a question that should leave the person saying, well, I gather there is no hope. Ah, and now we enter into the good news. It should, again, create a sense of hopelessness that should then point you to hope. Or at least help you point them to hope. It should cause concern, first of all, that, that the person is separated or living at that point in a state of separation. And the question is then for that sinner, where then is your hope, O sinner? How can you be saved, O sinner, from the holy, righteous wrath of God? And we all know the answer to that question, don't we? Of course we do. The answer to that question is the good news. The answer to that question is the good news for the whole world that is hopelessly lost in sin. So tonight, you should, I should be seeing a lot of smiles, because last week I saw a lot of frowns, which is understandable. Tonight, there should be so many smiles on your face because you, have, you are a partaker, a believer in that good news. And that good news is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the hopelessness of the bad news. Amen? The, the answer to the hopelessness of the bad news is the Lord Jesus Christ. The question, the answer to that question is the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. It is in Christ that we celebrate the gospel. It is because of Christ that we even have a gospel. And it is Christ that we share. Now listen again. Without Christ... There is no gospel. Without Christ, there is no gospel. There is no gospel without Christ. Without Christ, there is no good news. Without Christ, we are still dead in our sins. But again, thanks be to God for sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for in Him there is good news. Amen. Now, here's what we want to ask. Because we all know that the answer is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's try that again. We all know that the answer is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Very good. What about Jesus, though? Can you answer that question? Because they obviously know, those who you are evangelizing, they obviously know that you are going to point to Christ. And they obviously even know that you're going to say that Jesus Christ died for sins. Right? But why? What has Jesus done in relationship to Dying in relationship to sin that makes the, the bad news turn to good news upon believing in it. Well, what, what is the answer 
to that. Do you know these things? When you're sharing the gospel and, and you're speaking about Christ, do you know why Christ? Do you know how come Christ? Do you know why only Christ and Christ alone? These are important things for you to know. I believe there, there are a number of different points that you can emphasize when talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this. I probably had, in, in preparing all of these sermons for the gospel, this is my most difficult. Matter of fact, my brother was saying, you could do this sermon in your sleep. And I laughed thinking, maybe I could. And when I begin to sit down and study, there's so many things that we could say about Christ, it's almost, where do we start? There's so much to say about Christ, I, I want to take five months just on Christ and his atoning work. But for the sake of sharing the gospel, and for the sake of getting across the point of Jesus Christ, we're going to just deal with five points tonight. Now, when we do so, understand that there is so much information. There is a wealth of information in each of these points. But I just want you to get the gist of each of these points. Does that make sense? So number one, if I was presenting Christ... Here are five points that I would start with or, or go right to because I believe they're, they're the most important. And that's not to say there are not other important points. I would say these are the most important, though. Are you tracking with me when I say that? Okay. So here's what I would say. Number one, we want to point to the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Why do I say that? It may sound like a weird point. It, it, it may even sound strange. But here's the thing. When you're sharing the gospel, how many people already know about the Garden of Eden? How many people do you know that when you're sharing the gospel with them, they automatically know? And, and last week I say this. Last week I said people know the, 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 the Garden of Eden. They'll say Adam ate the apple. Let me just take a step back. We don't know whether it was an apple, whether it was an orange. We don't know if it's a fruit that still exists today. We don't know if it's a fruit that was only uh, found in the garden. So let me take that back from last week. But when sharing the gospel with people and you start to point back to the garden, raise your hand if most people, when you share the gospel with them or when you're sharing the fall of man, they already have ingrained in their mind at least what they think is an understanding of the Garden of Eden. Raise your hand if you... Yeah. But do they know... The consequence after verses 1 through 7 because of the fall. Meaning this, do they know the penalties of judgment that God gave to those who were involved in the fall? If they don't, then one of the first things you want to point them to is a promise that God gives right after the fall. Listen, the bad news is man fell. And then after man falls, God gives a dramatic amazing, beautiful promise in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then I want you to think about this. At the lowest moment of mankind, the fall of man, where death enters man, where sin enters man, God makes a promise. So immediately after the bad news, God makes a good news promise. And he makes a good news promise concerning a seed that would come from the woman. And this seed would crush the head of the one who influenced mankind, 
to fall in sin. That is good gospel, first gospel news in the garden already. That God is saying mankind shall not end their lives like this. That I will send a savior, a seed born of the woman. And his purpose is to come and crush sin, death, and the grave. God automatically in the garden makes a gospel claim. To those who know the garden, point them to the promise in the garden. The promise of what? The promise of the seed. What about the seed? That the seed would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. Who is the serpent? He's the one who influences sin. He's the one who influenced death. He's the one who caused or at least tempted man to fall and caused all of us to fall with him. There was a promise. And through the centuries, God continued to give more insight into just who this seed would be. And I wrote all of these things down intentionally because I wanted you to see them. Micah 5.2 tells us that this seed would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that this seed would be born of a virgin. Genesis 12.3.17.19 and Numbers 24.17 tells us that this seed would be born of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 49.10 tells us that this seed would be from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel tells us that he would be, the seed would be, heir to the throne of David. And Psalm 45.6 tells us that this throne would be an eternal throne, the seed. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that this seed would be called Emmanuel, or God with us. Hebrews, or Hosea 11.1 1 tells us that this seed would spend time in Egypt. Jeremiah 31.15 tells, tells us that there would be a massacre of children during the time that this seed was born. Isaiah 43 tells us that there would be a messenger that would prepare the way for this seed. Isaiah 11.1 1 tells us that this seed would be called a Nazarene. Are you, are you tracking with me? That this is all pointing back to Genesis. Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us that he would be a prophet, this seed. Psalm 69.8 tells, that, that tells us that this seed would be rejected by his own people. Isaiah 78.2 tells us that this seed would speak in parables. And Isaiah 61.1 tells us that this seed would heal the brokenhearted. Isaiah, or Psalm 110.4 tells us that he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Is this too much gospel for you? Is this too much word for you? Are you being overwhelmed right now with good news? You should be. You should be excited and saying amen in every single thing that points to the seed that saved you, that saved your life. Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 6 tells us that he would be called king. That's where you say amen. Huh? Psalm 41.9 tells us that this seed would be betrayed. Psalm 35.11 tells us that this seed would be falsely accused. Isaiah 53.7 tells us that he would be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 56 tells us, 50 verse 6 tells us, that this, this seed would be struck upon and spat upon. Isaiah 53.12 tells us that he would be crucified with criminals. Psalm 22.7 tells us that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm 109.4 tells us that he would pray for his enemies. Isaiah 53.9 tells us that he would be buried with the rich. Psalm 16.10 tells us that this seed would not stay dead, but he would rise from the dead. Psalm 24.10 tells us that this seed would ascend to heaven. And Isaiah 53.5 tells us that this seed would ultimately be a sacrifice and atone for sin. This seed is Christ. 
This seed is the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the Old Testament, they kept pointing to this, to this seed. And then in the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the book of Mark, the book of John, the seed shows up. And John looks at him in John 1 and 29 and says, Look, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's the seed that was promised way back in Genesis. This is the good news. This is the good news. And the seed, and all that he has accomplished, finally, and perfectly at the end, he crushes the head of the evil one, the world, sin, and the grave. This is the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So here, why do I say all that? Are you going to memorize all that? You might. There are 44 of them. I just maybe gave you 30. When sharing the gospel... You have a wealth of prophecies that have been fulfilled by the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're sharing the gospel, you start with the good news, or you, 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 you counter the bad news into the good news and point to Christ who was in the garden, who was promised in the garden. And you start pointing through the scriptures how it was constantly pointing to Christ, how the people were constantly looking toward a Savior. And then here comes the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken and continued to remind His people, and I remind you today that there is hope. And that hope is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sinner who says, where is my hope then? This is bad news. Then you point them to their only hope. The Lord Jesus Christ. The skull-crushing seed of the woman. Two. Jesus is fully God. And fully man. So I point to the fact that he is the seed promised and fulfilled all throughout the scriptures. I would point to the fact that he is fully God. And that he is fully man. Think about this. When you read each of the Gospels, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those authors begin their accounts by displaying that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. You ever thought about that when you begin to open up each of those Gospels? Whether you are reading Matthew or the book of Luke, and each of them begin with what? A genealogy. And what is the genealogy pointing to? That Christ is the seed of Abraham. Of Isaac, of Jacob. He is the seed that came forth from the woman, Eve. They are pointing back to the fact that this is the one Jewish nation. And this is the one all ye people that we have been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. Or, if you're reading Mark and John, which both start with similar beginnings or similar words. The word that they begin with is beginning. Mark says, in the beginning, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of these are, are pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is more than just a mere man. That Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is completely human, and He is completely God. He is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 that comes with all power and authority of heaven. Why is the deity... And humanity of Christ is important when you're sharing the gospel. Why is that important? Why would I even mention he's fully God and that he's fully man? What do you think? There is no man that will be born of man that will not be infected with the unrighteousness of man. That is passed on to the, every single person born of Adam. 
I'll say that again. There is no man born of man that will not be infected with the unrighteousness of man born of Adam. Except for the one not born of man. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is not born of man. Christ is born of the Spirit. Matthew 1.18 tells us that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and is not born of Adam, but is born of God. Therefore, he is not contaminated with the sin that passed from Adam to all men. Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the last Adam. He, like Adam, was born sinless, holy, and perfect. He, like Adam, had no earthly father. He, like Adam, only God was his father. He was given the same command, the same covenant of works that Adam was given, but only Christ himself could obey it. Because Christ himself was not only man, he was God. God was giving a, a command to man that only God could fulfill. Obey me perfectly. And there was only one who could do so. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we point to Christ in the gospel, why do we emphasize the fact that he is fully God and fully man? Because only Christ, as we're going to talk about, only Christ perfectly obeyed God and every single one of the laws that God has prescribed for man. And only God could do so. Does that make sense? Christ fully man. Not only that, again, fully God. The Bible says in Philippians 2.6, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found or being born in human likeness of men. When Christ emptied himself of his divine nature, or not, not let me say that again, when Christ emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, his divine rights, he came to earth and he chose not to hold on to divine rights. What are those divine rights? Omnipresent, meaning being everywhere at once. All powerful, meaning that no one could come close to him and he could do any. Well, actually, he was kind of all powerful, but he really emptied himself of his glory. So we could go to a number of things. Of What did Christ give up? Essentially, and pretty much only, Christ gave up his glory. Does that make sense? There's one instance in which Christ reveals his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shows his disciples who he really is. And in doing so, they are in awe and they begin to worship Christ because they see the manifestation of his glory, which he gave up when he became a man. He displayed his divinity, though, when he walked among us. It was Christ who defied the laws of nature by walking on water. It was Christ who, who commands the works of nature by calming, or calming the wind and the waves. It was Christ who showed creative power by feeding the multitudes with just five loaves and two fish. It was Christ who gave eyes to those who had none. It was Christ who gave limbs to people who had none. It was Christ who gave life to those who had died. He displayed his divinity even when he was on earth. So although he gave up his divinity by giving up his glory, he displayed his divinity in everything that he did. Does that make sense? He's not only fully man, but he's also fully God. How also is he fully man? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But essentially experiencing temptation and the, the pains of humanity like you and I do. But again... Why is it important when sharing the gospel? Again, Christ is not like any other human being. 
If he was like any other human being, then he could not save us. If Christ is like any other human being, then he cannot save us. Why? Because Christ himself would be infected with the same sinfulness that you and I were infected with. Or the same unrighteousness that you and I were infected with. But because Jesus Christ is fully man, he is able to do what the first man could not do. Obey God perfectly, and he is able to do so because he is fully God. Does that make sense? He alone is able to lay down his life for the sheep and, sa and save his sheep. Are we together? He makes a covenant with himself that only he himself can fulfill. And that covenant was made between God and himself. It's reminiscent of Genesis chapter, I think, 17, when God alone walks through the way of blood. No one walks with him. He makes no covenant with men. He makes a covenant with himself. Are we all in agreement? We all understand where we're going. Number three, Christ is sinless at birth, and he is sinless in his life. So, number one, he's the seed-crushing, or the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Number two, fully God, fully man. I think we've made the point that he is sinless, but we're going to talk about this a little bit more. He, is, he has a sinless birth, and he has a sinless life. And, and it may seem like the point has already been made, but Christ was born sinless. He was born of a virgin, born of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, Christ lives a perfect life. Christ lives a perfect life. It is essential to know that Christ was, born, was not born in sin and that he did not commit sin while he walked on this earth. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all ways, yet sinless. Tempted in all ways, yet sinless. Jesus is fully and perfectly man, and he's experienced the full range of human experience, and yet he is free from sin. Now, why is the sinlessness of Christ necessary? I've written down some points here. Jesus' sinlessness is necessary so that he could be wor a worthy substitute. This is so important when you're sharing the gospel. His sinlessness is necessary so that he could be a worthy substitute. If Jesus had not been the lamb without blemish or defect, his blood would not be precious in the eyes of God. If that was the case, Jesus himself would then needed, would have needed a savior. Just like us and his death could not have redeemed us from our sins. So if Christ is not sinless, then he too needs a savior, just like you and I. And his blood is precious in God's sight. Because he is sinless. He is the lamb without defect or blemish. Amen? Secondly, <clears throat> because Jesus lived a perfect life and obeyed the law, Jesus earns the right to sit on David's throne forever. In this way, Jesus secures our salvation as he reigns as king over all of us on our behalf. Next, Jesus, because Jesus lived perfect, we live perfect, or we are perfect. This is so important when it comes to the sinlessness of Christ. And let me just say this too. As believers, this is so important for your walk with Christ. Knowing this, that the active righteousness of Christ makes believers right before God. Because Christ actively lived a perfect life, you have now been accredited or seen in God's sight as Perfect because of Christ. Not only are we forgiven of our sins through the death of Christ, 
But 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we have become the righteousness of God. We have become the righteousness of God. Because, here's how, because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account because of our faith in Christ. Meaning this, that when believers are in Christ alone, the Father looks at believers the same way that he looks at Christ. Sinless. God looks at you the same way that he looks at Christ. Sinless. When you are in Christ, God looks at you the way that he looks at Christ. I'll say this again. You are sinless in the eyes of God because he's not looking at you. He's looking at Christ. You better thank God for that. And here's the encouragement. How constantly do we beat ourselves up because of our unrighteousness? And God is saying, I'm not looking at your righteousness. If that was the case, then you should be worried. I'm looking at the righteousness of Christ, which has been credited to your empty account. So praise God for the righteousness of Christ, because it has been credited to your unrighteousness. So when you lay your head on your pillow at night, rest on the righteousness of Christ and not your own. Amen. That should cause a great deal of joy in your life right now. That when Christ sees you, or when God sees you, he sees the perfect work of his son. Not the imperfect work of you and I on a daily basis. And last, oh, number four, suffering. He is the suffering Messiah, and, atoning, and he offers a, an atoning sacrifice. So we've dealt with three points Next, I would point to the fact that he is a suffering Messiah. And his suffering is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was John the Baptist again who said in John 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John spoke of a lamb, now listen closely. All those in that first century, they knew the language that he was using. You here today, you and I here today, the word lamb could go right over our head. And here's why. Because we don't offer up a lamb for sacrifice every single year so that our sins could be forgiven. But if you're living in that century, as soon as someone says, lamb who takes away sins of the world, those people heard John and they understood the significance of lambs and how they were being temporarily used to atone for the sins of the people. Or to be a substitute for the sins of the people on a yearly basis. It was during Israel's time of bondage in Egypt that God passed through Egypt during the ten plagues and took the lives of the firstborn of every family member who did not do what? Place the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. So when John looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they are understanding something called Passover. And that every year they celebrate when God passed over those who had the blood of the Lamb over their doorpost. And every single year the priest came into the, the most holy place and offered up a Lamb on behalf of the nation so that their sins could be forgiven for that year. And what was the lamb? He was an innocent, 
bystander who did nothing wrong, who was perfect, who was spotless. And because of his purity of appearance, he symbolized a life that could be given for the impurity of the people. What was this lamb representing? It was representing Christ. The lamb was the innocent one. Christ is the innocent one. The lamb was the one who came and stood in the place of those who were sinners. Christ is the one who came and stands in the place of those who were sinners. This is known as penal substitution. Again, year after year, the priests would come. And they would be looking forward to the time when there would be one who would come and take away their sins forever. Who would be an, a sacrifice for all times, once and for all. Christ is the fulfillment of that type. Or Christ is the fulfillment of that shadow. Christ is the antitype. He's the fulfillment of that sacrifice of the Lamb. Christ himself is the Lamb. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, when he sat with his disciples for the final time before his death, he said to them in Matthew 26.28, Drink of it, all of you, speaking of the wine, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we learned recently in John chapter 10, the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord. What does the Bible say concerning his suffering? Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has, listen to this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten or stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, which has been a great help to me in this particular sermon. He says this. I love this. I'm the one who should have died. Not Jesus. I should have been punished. Not he. And yet he took my place. He died for me. They were my transgressions. But his wounds. My iniquities. But his chastisement. My sin, his sorrow. And his punishment brings me peace. His stripes won my healing. His grief, my joy. His death. My life. Why did he suffer? Why did he stand in our place? He was the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And not only that, but we conclude with this. And he is risen. He is a risen savior. It's been brought up to me before and I agree. This is the most overlooked and understated truths about Christ. That he is not dead, he is alive. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. The gospel is only the good news. Because Christ, who was crucified, is no longer dead, but is alive forevermore. That's why it's good news. It's not good news if he's still dead. It's only good news because he's risen. Christ rose from the grave. Christ conquered the grave. Death could not hold him. As the angels announced to the disciples who were coming to mourn their dead Messiah, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He's not here, but he is risen. Can you imagine hearing that? Being at the tomb, coming with, with sorrows and with grief, and to have these angels standing before you saying, you're looking for a dead man. But he has fulfilled his promise. He's not here. He's alive. You imagine the, the, the joy and excitement. I, I, there is no Christmas that I've, ever ex, that I've ever experienced. No gift that I've ever opened and been surprised of that could, could match that moment when they said to him, when they said to them, he is not here. He's alive. He's not dead. He's alive. Now listen, if, if Christ did not rise, then he would be just like you and me. He would be just another dead man. Every word that he did would be a mystery. And every word that he said would be a lie. Every claim that he made would be that of a madman. And his death would have ultimately amounted to nothing. But he is not dead. But he is not dead. Oh, when you share the gospel, don't leave out the fact that he is not dead. If you leave out that he's not dead then there's no gospel to the presentation that you've given. You must emphasize. I implore you. I beg you. I, I, I will slap you if you do not say to that person who you're sharing the gospel with, he is alive. He's alive. Can you imagine Christ? I was sitting there studying and I was thinking, can you imagine Christ laying in the tomb? His body is wrapped. And can you imagine the moment where as he's laying there in that empty tomb, it's just him. Where his heart began to beat again. And from that pumping of the heart, blood began to go through every single one of the veins of his body as he's just laying there. And as vein, as blood begins to go into the veins, his mind, his brain begins to, to start working and start shaking. And all of a sudden, he sits up. Can you, can you just get the picture? I was sitting there just tripping on, I just getting the picture of Christ just sitting up, even with, with those wraps. And, and because he's God, they just begin to fall off of him. And the moment where he opens his eyes and takes a deep breath. I just, I hope that when we get to heaven, that there's a, a, a movie place where they can, hey, Christ raising from the tomb showing at 11 o'clock. I will tell my wife, because she's still going to be my wife there. Let's go, let's go, let's go. i got to see that one. He's alive. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. And who is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Because he's alive, we live, and we have life through him. It's probably been the, the most uh, quoted or, or read verse in this church within the past two years, but I'm going to read it to you until you memorize it. And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Bad news. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For grace by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Amen. Good news. So, as a working presentation of the gospel, God is holy. He's creator of the universe and he is judge. Man was created in God's image, made perfect. God gave a command to expand his glory, worship him and obey him. Man rebelled and disobeyed that command, bringing death to all humanity. We have become depraved in our minds, our wills and our desires. Because of sin, we have become separated from God, holy God. And his wrath is upon us because of sin. But thanks be to God. Is that there? I hope it is. Yes. But thanks be to God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man. Who faced every temptation of man but perfectly obeyed the law of God. Jesus was fully God and displayed this in truth, in words, miracles, forgiveness, and ultimately rising from the dead. Jesus died in the place of those who deserved punishment. Becoming a substitute for them, taking on the punishment that they deserve, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering, finally, sin, death, and the grave. This is just from what we've learned so far. This is a summary of what we've got so far. Now, what's the next point? What are you going to do about it? The next point is the, the imploring. Now, place your faith in Christ. Turn to Christ, repent of your sins, trust in Him alone for your salvation, and you will be saved. And then what do we end with? And it's going to cost you your life. It cost Him His life, and will cost you His life, to cost you your life to follow Him and to take up your cross. This is the gospel. Do you hear it now? Are you seeing it? Yes. Let's pray. I'm four minutes over. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your life, your death, and for your resurrection. Thank you for atoning for our sins and dying in our place. Thank you, Lord, for calling us by name. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the faith to believe. We pray that for the, for those who are in this world who have not yet come to faith in you. Equip us with this truth, Lord, and help us to be vigilant in sharing it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.